I'm Tracy McCauley. And I'm Liz Zuleika. We are cardiology pharmacists, educators, and self-declared literature crusaders. And welcome to CardioScript, a cardiology podcast brought to you in collaboration with the ACCP Cardiology Practice and Research Network. And thank you for joining us on this CardioScript's Classics episode, where we take a step back in time and explore literature that got us to where we are today. On this episode of CardioScripts, although we will give some relevant updates from last week's ESC 2020 meeting, we are offering another installment of the CardioScripts Classic episodes through a discussion of dual antiplatelet therapy, or DAPT, with Dr. Steve P. Dunn. Dr. Dunn joins us from Charlottesville, Virginia, where he is the cardiology clinical coordinator at UVA, and he's our first recurrent guest. So welcome back, Dr. Dunn, to CardioScripts. Well, thank you for having me back. It's good to be with you in spirit and electronically. That's how we're with everyone these days, isn't it? That's right. Okay. Well, you know, I've known you for many years, and I know that you're very well-rounded in your cardiovascular knowledge, but when it comes to topics you are passionate about, antiplatelet therapy may be on the top of the list. So I hope you're as excited as I am to help me tell the history of how we came to be where we are now with antiplatelet therapy in the setting of ACS. Yeah, well, thank you for giving me a platform. Normally, I just get to torture single learners at a time uh, with this subject, so I'm pleased to uh, now espouse to the CardioScripts audience all of my biases and permutations and silly thoughts about dual antiplatelet therapy. I think it's probably a good place to start is with ISIS-2, which was published in 1988 in Lancet. This classic trial enrolled over 17,000 patients with suspected AMI. Utilizing a two-by-two factorial trial design, subjects were randomized to aspirin or placebo, and then again to streptokinase or placebo. And although there's a ton to discuss about the lytic arm, the aspirin arm demonstrated a highly significant 20% reduction in the five-week vascular mortality. And this was really comparable to the reduction seen with the streptokinase arm. So when folks talk about this trial, they talk a lot about the similarity in the efficacy of those two agents. And in fact, when they were co-administered, so folks who were randomized to both active drugs, they see almost a 40% reduction in mortality. So the effect was truly additive. There was virtually no observed downside of aspirin, although keep in mind, it was a very short follow-up period of only five weeks and ultimately a number needed to treat of 42 for aspirin. So Dr. Dunn, will you share some thoughts on this trial, please? And I know you have many. Yes, this is maybe my favorite trial of all time. And uh, one I almost always start a rotation with and and teaching with. And I think there's, um, it's such a good teaching trial for a number of reasons. First and foremost is the formatting of the trial is just bonkers. Like if you compare it to today's very standardized reporting of a clinical trial. And the Lancet's always done this to some degree, but really is kind of tightened up their their act in recent years. But this trial just reads like stream of consciousness. You go there and you're like, what in the world like were they thinking with the way this was done and uh, the reporting of it? And so it's a great trial to give to a student who has only read these very uh, standardized reporting trials and have them try to make sense of it um, is an exercise and fun. So the, the best thing about it, I think, is there's no traditional like table one in this trial. Like, so you're like, who the heck are these people? What is suspected AMI? It's a great trial to talk about definitions and the meaning of words in clinical trials, which gets really important because you know the, the primary endpoint of vascular mortality is not 
strictly an efficacy endpoint, and and so what does that really mean? So I think from the perspective of aspirin, what you I'll just reemphasize a couple of things you said, but one of which is just the stunning magnitude of benefit of aspirin in this trial when you compare it to an actual reperfusion strategy, which was thrombolysis. So I think it, it certainly speaks to the role of antiplatelet therapy and ACS at, at this stage. And I think that when I sort of quiz people about this, you know, some people kind of go by it, but a lot of people are also really surprised that at little old aspirin, um, you know, went toe to toe with a reperfusion therapy and is just as effective if you compare it in this data set. And so I always hone in on that and uh, like to talk about that. It's a great like textbook example of an additive effect. So if you're, you know, again, you're teaching biostatistics, this trial is probably one of the preeminent ones that's used to demonstrate that. So I just love everything about it. The other uh, trap I, I tend to lay uh, with this trial and probably what this trial is almost as famous for is this idea of what's the value of subgroup analysis. And so when they submitted this trial to the Lancet, they did not include subgroup analysis in it. And the Lancet said, you know, if you want us to publish this in this rambling format, uh, we're going to ask you to do subgroup analysis. They chose to make this an exercise in the value of subgroup analysis. So very cheekily, they put in as the top analysis, astrologic birth sign, which is, we know, as rational scientists has no bearing on anything. So they include subgroup analysis to demonstrate that if you're Gemini or Libra, you did not benefit from aspirin in this trial set uh, versus not. And so it's a great example of, um, you know, a great teaching article from that perspective. I almost always lead with it because we do so much subgroup analysis in cardiology and, and we'll talk about you know, some examples of upcoming that I think it, it just illustrates how we have to be careful with interpretation of that. And I just love how like on the nose it is and to the credit of the Lancet, they publish it. And so it's, it's really famous for all those reasons. For those of you who have not read the trial, you should. I think it's a good lesson for reading from start to end and certainly established the role for aspirin as a backbone of antiplatelet therapy in this setting. And it really corroborated the findings of an earlier 1983 VA cooperative study, which really looked at that non-ST segment ACS patient population. And so moving forward from 1988, we, we had aspirin and it wasn't really until stenting procedures were starting or percutaneous intervention, really even before stents were placed, that we started to look at overall antithrombotic therapy for secondary prevention. Around 19, well, in 1998, there was the publication of the Stent Anticoagulation Restenosis Study Investigators, or STARS trial. And so I would like to get your thoughts on this comparison of aspirin alone versus aspirin plus warfarin or aspirin and ticlopidine. Yeah, so moving forward, a um, lot has changed really in the couple of years. So the whole reperfusion therapy um, management style has moved from pharmacologic to non-pharmacologic, where we're really looking at percutaneous coronary intervention as, as the mainstay of reperfusion. And so with that, the idea of reperfusion, non-pharmacologic reperfusion is that it wasn't durable, and so stents were developed to try to maintain patency over a long period of time. The problem is, is that metal in blood equals thrombosis, as they quickly discovered. And so the natural reaction to thrombosis in an artery is anticoagulation. And so that was really the standard when stents were developed. And keep in mind, these are all bare metal stents at this point. So the concept of a drug limiting stent was a glimmer in somebody's eye. Um, and so anticoagulation for these stents did reduce the event rate, uh, but it also had a lot of bleeding complications associated with it. I didn't 
practice during that era. But I heard stories that it was a relatively ugly procedure because everything is femoral at this point in terms of access site. And so there's just a lot of bleeding with it. And so the standard of some amount of antiplatelet therapy and anticoagulation with heparin and then warfarin, and then you throw 2B3 inhibitors in, specifically of ciximab, for semi-patients, and you just have a lot of bleeding going on. And so someone um, picked cyclopidine off the dustbin because it was, as I understand it, just some sort of vague antithrombotic drug uh, at the time. And they started looking more from translational data to suggest that platelets were central to this stem thrombosis process and looked at you know, the idea of dual antiplatelet therapy as a strategy. And so STARS really aligned um, some of those disparate trials that were done. And I, the thing I like about this trial is for years, we have preached the idea of doom and gloom for not taking your specifically the P2Y12 inhibitor. And so I like STARS because it includes an aspirin-only arm compared to this crazy antithrombotic cocktail and then compared to dual antiplatelet therapy. And so, um, you know, overall, the, the trial, you know, establishes dual antiplatelet therapy is the best in terms of efficacy and safety. But I'll just um, remind everyone that aspirin only in this era, which is old style bare metal stents, uh, was only a 3.6% or so 30-day endpoint rate. So it's it's not quite as dire as we make it out to believe. And certainly that's probably lower in today's context. So it's, it's important enough, but um, we're not talking, at least I had the impression as a learner that the event rate was like 50%, like if you didn't take your your clopidogrel or your teclopidine. You know, so of course we, we jettisoned clopidogrel or teclopidine for clopidogrel because of, of safety reasons. And so they analyzed that fairly closely here. And the other thing um, I thought was really interesting with this is that dual antiplatelet therapy versus antithrombotic therapy in this trial didn't really change bleeding rates that much. So we did see that in some other um, analyses, but at least in this trial, it's important to remember that dual antiplatelet therapy potentiates bleeding pretty significantly and, you know, certainly more than single antiplatelet therapy alone, as we'll see in future data. And by the standards of a lot of the trials we'll look at moving forward, it was a relatively small study, so that they did use the major adverse cardiovascular endpoint that was pretty broad. It, it included things that became more popular later again, but the revascularization of that target lesion and geographic evidence of thrombosis, as well as myocardial infarction and death. So the event rate, like you said, I think it's a really good one to point to with that first um, introduction of PCI. So certainly all bare metal stents and not a whole, whole lot else that they were doing. So I think we, we get tainted a little bit in the era we came out, Dr. Dunn, with the first generation drug eluding stents and what we saw then as well. You know, the next large piece of the puzzle really didn't come until 2001 when Dr. Youssef and his team published the effects of clopidogrel in addition to aspirin in patients with acute coronary syndromes without ST segment elevation, or better known to all of us as the CURE trial. So Steve, what did CURE and maybe the CURE PCI sub-analysis add to this story? Yeah, so they, they did two things that had never really been done before, I should say, not really in this scale. So they looked at the idea of a loading dose, and then they looked at a longer duration. Uh, the problem is if you just read the CURE trial itself, you don't know which of these is actually helpful. Um, and so it's it's kind of like um, if you ever played that little experiment with the scientific method in grade school, and it taught you this idea that you can only test like one variable hypothesis at a time. Well, they tested two here. So they violated the scientific method. But 
Um, the idea is that we, we weren't really sure when this came out, is it the loading dose or the duration? And I think there was some cynicism towards industry because uh, a lot of people felt the duration was probably not as helpful. Um, and there's some hints that it might be if you just look at the divergence of Kaplan-Meier curve in this trial, they appear to continue to diverge after the short term, although the majority of events do happen within the first 30 days. So, you know, CURE was really impactful in that it, it certainly established the role of dual antiplatelet therapy in ACS, not just in the management of PCI-related ACS. And so important subgroups that came out of this that were instructive were a lot of the trial didn't actually get revascularization, so only about like a third or so did. And so it really um, looked as beneficial in those, you know, quote unquote, medically managed patients. We weren't really, you know, sure how to approach that within a very PCI-focused treatment strategy with the U.S. And so PCI cure was helpful to basically look at that subgroup and to say that um, really, if you just limit it to the first 30 days, because everybody in the trial who got PCI then had to get open-label clopidogrel or teclopidine. And so you can actually see the impact of the randomization to clopidogrel a little better if you look at just that first 30 days subgroup and you can kind of see that there still appeared to be a lot of benefit to those patients from just the loading dose aspect of it. They didn't really focus on the question um, that I brought up though, which is whether, you know, is the benefit in the upfront loading dose or with the maintenance dose strategy uh, throughout the, the following years. The absolute risk reduction was 2.1% with a number needed to treat of 48. So Important for sure, but driven all by the non-fatal MI sort of difference. And I think interesting, you know, we we will see varying bleeding definitions, which makes it really complex to compare these trials across time as well. And so bleeding definitions used in this trial actually showed that bleeding was increased any bleeding events with a number needed to harm of 29. So when you directly compare those, bleeding was certainly important and known to be importantly increased by dual antiplatelet therapy over single antiplatelet therapy from really its inception. And major bleeding was also statistically significantly increased with an absolute risk of harm there of 1%. So important, and we'll talk more about bleeding as we go through, because it certainly becomes important when we're evaluating things like duration of therapy. So since clopidogrel was maybe far from perfect, or I should say we still see a higher rate of ACS events than we would like to moving forward, then there, there was room for more potent, predictable antiplatelet agents in the market. And that was seen with prostagrel and ticagrelor as they were developed and results were published of the Triton and Plato trials in 2007 and 2009, respectively. Will you talk a little bit about Triton and Plato and how we approached life after these two trials? Yes, I think we were all on, at least I was on pins and needles awaiting the Triton results because there was a little bit of an inside baseball bet um, at the time in cardiovascular practice, whether there was value to more intensive antiplatelet therapy and a lot of that was wrapped up in the pharmacodynamic studies looking at platelet function and whether or not we were just seeing benefit by association or whether there was really benefit to escalation. And so there was a theory that it would lead to more bleeding, but not necessarily better outcomes for these patients. And so basically the world of pharmacodynamic monitoring, in addition to pharmaceutical industry, was, was sort of watching the Triton trial with a lot of interest because uh, not only were there other drugs in the pipeline, but it also brought about this idea of pharmacodynamic monitoring and genetics and all that is a viable tool to assess patient outcomes. So I think when the top line results came out, everyone was like, yay, like it works, it's it's helpful. 
And then it's sort of like a redux of the cure trial in a way where you look at it a little closer. And yes, you see a, a reduction in a composite endpoint, but it's really driven by non-fatal events, um, which you know are still important, but not things that we necessarily lose sleep over. And then you see an excess in bleeding events. And so now we're back to the square one of how do we decide in the trade-off in the population, is it worth it to escalate to more intensive therapy at the cost of increased bleeding rents, including fatal bleeding events in this case. And so um, when they published the trial, um, they did something that would normally take three sub papers to come out and explain, which is why do we see this discrepancy in bleeding events? And of course that's driven by regulation. So I think the FDA probably saw this data and said, you better explain this fatal bleeding risk or we're not going to prove this drug. And so they did a very valiant effort to identify um, some key characteristics that uh, didn't demonstrate benefit with practical or, or demonstrate excessive risk. And so that was where the stroke or TIA contraindication comes in. Now, keep in mind, there's no like translational basis for this. This is purely outcomes based. And then the age and you know weight thing also popped out of this database. And so they, they did this analysis to say like, well, if you kind of take out all the bad apples, then the rest of the patients do really well without a lot of bleeding. So it's, it's in a way our first step towards individualized therapies. Yeah, and I think for the same reasons we talked about with ISIS-2 and Geminis and Libras, the, the way they approach that analysis, although mandated by the FDA and important for helping get the drug approved, it sort of bothered a lot of us because it, it maybe isn't the most scientifically sound way. And their outcomes then were presented in a way of, if we had excluded these people intentionally, this would look really potentially good. To complete out the, the new, more potent antiplatelet agents, let's talk a little bit about the PLATO trial, which evaluated Ticagrelor. Yeah, so um, this also was really interesting um, because for the first time at this point, we have a non-thiodopyridine um, that's being tested. And so a lot of work went into trying to figure out how clopidogrel worked after it was on the market than it w- then came before. And so that's where this idea that we weren't achieving the full EDP pathway inhibition. And then the thionopyridines were problematic because of irreversibility and they hung around forever for the lifespan of the platelet. If you were a prostagrel, that platelet count recovery or the platelet function recovery took longer because it's more potent. And so you're stuck with these drugs forever in a day. And so the idea that we could find um, a P2Y12 receptor inhibitor that wasn't a thionopyridine was really attractive, but it also makes you worry if maybe there's some off-target effect and maybe it's the drug and whether there'd be benefit in and of itself. And um, so Plato was was the swing for the fences trial with Ticagrelor, uh, which, you know, has some important differences with Clopidogrel and Prasagrel in that it's a shorter half-life, so it necessitates like twice a day dosing. And then the trial design was a little bit different in that you're taking a little bit more like a cure it's like the modern day cure trial where you're taking an all-comers ACS population. Now we're including the semi patients as well, but we're also including all the conservatively treated patients. And we're randomizing to uh, do antiplatelet therapy with Ticagrelor versus Clopidogrel. And the top line results of this trial are A, very misleading, and B, were hugely eye-catching. Um, in that you see this broad reduction in the composite endpoint like you saw with Plato, and, or, or, or I'm sorry, with um, Triton, and you may roll your eyes at that and be like, well, who cares? It's it's the similar, you know, if you superimpose the Kaplan-Meier curves, it's similar. But importantly, when you look at the the individual endpoints, cardiovascular mortality is reduced with this. And this is really the first time that we've seen uh, mortality stand out in an antiplatelet trial. I, I can't think of a lot of other examples of that other than the old commit trial with 
clopidogrel and um, a huge Chinese population. And so that really stood out. And then the other thing is their endpoint definition of major bleeding or, or their primary endpoint definition of bleeding uh, was not statistically different versus clopidogrel. And so if you're looking at that, you're like, why? I mean, this should be like, you know, it's a Dewey defeats Truman, like with the newspaper, um, you know, sing it from the rafters. We have an event, a drug that reduces all these events without risk. And it turns out that was a little bit illusionary because it depended on how specifically you define bleeding in that trial. And if you go a little bit more in the details and look at a bit more of an apples to apples comparison, both of these trials also included definitions of Timmy major bleeding not related to bypass surgery. And that was really no different between these drugs. And so in a way, the the benefit of ticagrelor are all hinges on this cardiovascular mortality reduction. And so that's the really where we get into the modern context and we're comparing Ticagrelor versus prasugrel, a lot of people will lean towards ticagrelor for benefit because of this mortality reduction. Yeah, and we're definitely going to talk about ISAR React 5. Before we do, though, I want to sort of talk through and give people a little more details about the design of the three trials we just talked about the most. So Cure, you already talked about the loading dose being given up front and how we we sort of were studying two concepts, but it really became ingrained to give folks a loading dose. They were given 300, but I think that has been modernized to 600, partially because of the timing. So in Cure, folks may not remember, but it was about 10 days on average before folks went to the cath lab. It was non-STEMI patient population, so urgency clearly wasn't there, and it was just a different approach in that era as compared to what we have with early intervention now. So to give clopidogrel in a loading dose that you affect to be you know, effective in a modern era, most folks use 600 milligrams so that they're effective at the time of PCI. In the Triton trial, um, if you'll talk a little bit about expand upon what you were talking about with how they give it and how the placebo arm was given. Yeah, so they um, they really gave 300 milligrams of clopidogrel per the trial design, and that definitely is controversial. And at the time, you could argue that when the trial was being done, that that might have been reasonable based on labeling, based on credo, based on cure, because that had been pretty firmly entrenched. But I think we, we definitely found, especially in an early PCI, since that 600 milligrams is the superior loading dose, and that's demonstrated not only in terms of antiplatelet efficacy, but also the outcomes, and so significantly reduces periprocedural PCI events as well as post-PCI infarction. And so there really is no reason not to give 600 milligrams to these patients, and so that's definitely a flaw in design for the Triton trial. Plato, I think, maybe was a little later out of the gate, and so like the wise philosopher they've named the trial after, uh, they chose a little more nuanced approach, and they decided to let the investigators decide which loading dose to give, and that more probably realistically mimicked practice at the time. But still, when you look, there's a pretty big discrepancy in favor of 300 milligram loading doses, even in the Plato trial, although you at least see the emergence of, you know, 10% or so of patients given 600. And I think we see in um, Plato as well that a, a, quite a bit of the patients who were randomized to ticagrelor were actually pretreated with clopidogrel. And again, to mimic real world, they didn't exclude folks if they'd already been loaded, whereas the, the Triton trial was definitely more controlled in the standpoint that nothing was given um, until they were at the time of angiography. So that, that definitely... Um, sets those trials up to be hard to compare apples to apples. And I think what you hinted at was 
if people would stack them up against each other with all of these innate differences, differences in population, differences in bleeding outcomes, difference in um, efficacy outcomes, most people would have bet that ticagrelor was going to be the superior drug of the three. Stay tuned for part two of the CardioScripts Classic, DAPT edition. And in the meantime, check out Dr. Dunn's previous CardioScripts episode about ISAR React 5, titled Reaction from Steve Dunn. Thanks for tuning in to CardioScripts. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please tell your friends and subscribe and rate us on Apple Podcasts. You can follow us on Twitter at CardioScripts and check out our website at CardioScripts.com. Thanks for listening. The views and opinions are those of the individuals on today's episode. The ACCP Cardiology PRN is not responsible for the presented content or its accuracy.